to the Downtown Community Church Podcast. My name is Delaney Stoner, and I'm the Families Director here at DCC. DCC is located in downtown Tallahassee, Florida, and our heart is to reach the city by loving God, making disciples, and being great neighbors. We'd love to have you join us as we gather each Sunday at 9.15 and 11 a.m. If you would like to make a financial contribution, learn more about DCC, or contact us, please visit downtowncommunitychurch.com. We hope you enjoyed this week's sermon and thank you for being a part of our mission as we continue to spread the gospel to Tallahassee and beyond. Well, good morning. I am glad that you are here and we are starting a brand new series today. Um, And instead of telling you what the series is, I want to lead us into our time together by telling you a story uh, about myself when I was first becoming a Christian that I think is really going to set the tension for what we're going to be spending most of the summer talking about. Uh, When I first became a Christian, I was about 15 years old and had lived a life of, you know, kind of whatever you would do before you were 15. But at 15 years old, I went to this thing that many of you are familiar with called FSU, or not FSU, the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. It was at Leon High School, so shout out to all the Leon Lions that are around. And uh, someone who had become one of my good friends and mentors, his name is uh, Dean Insir, many of you know he pastors City Church. He gave the sermon that I first got saved at. And when I was In the audience, I gave my life to Christ, and really soon after, one of the things that people would talk about as Christians uh, is they would say, you know, now you need to have a quiet time. You need to have a quiet time. And I kept hearing this phrase, quiet time. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, uh, let me explain something. Because Christians use confusing words because we're Christians, so I guess we just do that. But a quiet time is essentially time that you spend reading in praying in your relationship with Jesus. And you read and you pray and you read and you pray and you read and pray, both of which you are quiet, thus quiet time. So when I first started as a Christian, as with most people who are starting out in their relationship with Jesus, you have some time where you read, but then it came time to our pray, I'm sorry. And praying was kind of natural because everybody knows that praying is just kind of you talking to God and, and perhaps you listening to God. But praying comes relatively natural to all of us. On the other side of it, there's reading. And to be honest, when I first started to read the Bible, it was really, really difficult. And for a long time, as I read the Bible, it was really, really difficult because the Bible was written hundreds and hundreds of years ago. The Bible was written in multiple languages and the Bible was written to an entirely different cultural context than we have here today. And on top of that, if anybody's ever told you to read the Bible, they probably, started, they probably told you to start around the New Testament, which is about two thirds of the way through the Bible. The problem is, is no one really ever explains how to read the Bible because as you go through, here's what you find. Lots of good thoughts, lots of interesting idea, but most of it's really difficult to understand. And even the things that are very, fairly common, like, hey, love your neighbor, are so general and so vague that it's really difficult to drill down to say, okay, what exactly do I do with this? Well, the good news is, is if you have ever struggled with the idea that where do I start What do I read? And everything I read seems so ethereal. Everything I read seems so vague. It's difficult to understand. And it is extremely and extraordinarily difficult to apply to your everyday life. You are going to love this series. Because what we are going to spend the entire summer reading is called the book 
of James. And James is the most practical book in all of scripture. Now, James, in its 108 verses, this is interesting, in 108 verses that are in the book of James, 54 of the 108 verses that are in the book of James have some type of a command of what you are supposed to do. In other words, James is deeply practical. So I hope that if you're in here and you have struggled with reading the Bible or you are struggling with with reading the Bible, this summer is going to be great for you because one of the best pieces of advice that I got was someone who said, you should, as a new Christian, read the book of James because it is so straightforward and so extraordinarily and deeply practical. Now, If you're here and you're not a Christian, or you're here and you are a Christian, you've been Christian for a long time, here's the other side of it for you. Because you have been reading the Bible for for a while. You've been studying the scriptures for a while. You know how to interpret. You know how to contextualize. You know how to, for some of you, you're even a little bit deeper and a little bit farther along, and you've even studied a little bit of Greek or a little bit of Hebrew, and you perhaps know how to parse a verb or do something like that. What's interesting about James is James was the half-brother of Jesus. They had, you know, different daddies, but same mama. James, who is the half-brother of Jesus, wasn't a follower of Jesus while Jesus was alive, but he saw the resurrected Jesus and said, you know what, I believe that my brother is in fact the son of God. Now, all the parents in the room, we all kind of got a pause and for an apologetics check here to say, what would it take for your younger sibling to pronounce that their older brother is the son of God, that their older brother is in fact the Messiah and they now worship him. Truth is, they would probably have to be brutally murdered and come back from the dead in order for anybody to believe that. And so James, the half-brother of Jesus, comes to a believing and saving faith After Jesus' resurrection, James then ascends the kind of Christian leadership chain and he becomes the Church of Jerusalem's head elder. He is essentially the senior pastor at the place that is the epicenter of all Christendom as Christendom began. James is the guy that's in charge of the biggest, baddest, most powerful, most influential church of the early church in and of itself. And James was so deeply devoted to prayer that historians will say that James' nickname was something to the effect of camel knees. Now, if you're calling me camel knees, we're probably going to throw some hands afterwards. Um, But for James, this was a compliment because here's here's why they called him that. He was so deeply devoted to prayer that he had scars, he had calluses built up on his knees. And what's, what's so interesting about James, the depth of his spirituality was driven into practicality. I hope that if you're here and you've been a Christian for a while, in fact, if you've been reading the Bible day after day, week after week, year after year, month after month, and you know it like the back of your hand, I hope that you are so challenged by the depth of James' spirituality that drove the level with which it influenced how he lived and the practicality and the ebb and flow of everyday life. Now, the subject that we're going to talk about today is actually something that anybody can identify with. 
If you're a Christian, you're not a Christian, you're exploring faith, you're perhaps here for the first time and somebody invited you and you're just kind of, you know, trying to check this whole Jesus and Christianity thing out. Everyone has gone through what we're going to talk about today, but to lead us into our time together, um, I want to read through a couple of verses to get us there. So James chapter one, verse one, if you have your Bible with you. James chapter one, verse one. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, Now, it's interesting here because what James doesn't say is, James, by the way, my brother's Jesus. (laughs) If I were James and I was talking and I was given my, you know, my my, my rap sheet, if I was given my background, if I was given my context and trying to tell people why you should listen to me, I'd say, man, this is James. Man, y'all know me because I ate Cheerios with Jesus. In fact, Honey Nut Cheerios. In fact, my man did Jesus, you know, aka Jesus did this really weird thing where he'd pour his Honey Nut Cheerios in with some, um, you know, Rice Krispies or something like that. And let me, let me just tell you a little backstory about Jesus. But no, James says that I am essentially a bondservant of Jesus. A bondservant, I am a slave to Jesus. I am, he is my master and I am in every way subservient to him. And he says to, now this is who it's to, the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Now this has some Jewish context and roots, but this is basically the church are the people of God. James is saying, to the people of God that have been scattered. There's some persecution that existed since the beginning of the church that has continued to this point and will just continue to ramp up more and more and more and more and more. James, living in Jerusalem, the head of Christendom at the time, knew this, understood this. And so James is saying, to the persecuted church, here's what you need to know. Verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, Whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now, this is so counterintuitive. By nature, trials are difficult. By nature, trials are stressful. By nature, trials have uncertainty in them. By, trials, by, by nature, trials oftentimes have transitioned them. Trials by nature are the opposite or the antithesis of joyful. But James says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. In other words, there are a variety of things that fall into this category. I'm not talking about a single type of trial, not just persecution of that you know, existed in it, not just sickness as a trial, not just financial trials, not just temptations as trials, all of those trials, umbrella statement, fit into the context of trials, but various trials, and I want you to consider it pure joy. Now, good news is the call of the Christian is not the call to be a sadistic human being where you wish self-harm upon yourself because you're just like jaw rule, pain is love. That's not what he's talking about here. Verse two, he explains why, or verse three, I'm sorry, he explains why he says this. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. In other words, here's why. I'm not just telling you to consider it pure joy because as a Christian, you're supposed to be a weirdo. I'm telling you that you ought to consider it pure joy because the testing of your faith develops perseverance. It creates an ability and a capacity to be able to withstand. Some of your Bibles say this way, because the testing of your your faith develops patience. Patience isn't the type of patience that it takes to sit in a waiting room. It's not like James is saying, hey, man, you're going to go through this trial and you're going to kill it at waiting in the doctor's office. He's saying, you're going through a trial 
And part of the way that God is using this trial, not necessarily the purpose of the trial, but part of how God is using this trial in your life is he is growing your endurance and your capacity as a person or as a leader. I was talking to somebody not too long ago who had graduated. They were on into the working world and it was a really difficult transition for them as they went to a new city. They were in a job. They were working 40 hours a week. 40 hours to 50 hours a week where they had to be mentally present all the time. They was in the healthcare field. People's health, people's life sometimes hung in the balance of this person being mentally acute the entire time they were at work. And as they came back, you know, to DCC for the first time in a long time, and they were talking about how it was difficult and how, how they were just being stretched. And sometimes it just was almost seemed unbearable and it was just so much more than they expected. He, here was what I... I, I, I try to encourage with, and here's what I think is just, is, is the perspective of this. When you're young, oftentimes we view God growing us. We, we view God growing our capacity and our ability to persevere under trials through the lens of how long did I spend in prayer today? How much did I read the Bible? How many verses did I memorize? And that is absolutely important. But what he's saying here is that trials develop your perseverance. Now, it doesn't stop there. As it develops your perseverance, your ability, your capacity, that perseverance, verse 4, must finish its work. Now, some of, the verse, some of your verses say it this way. Let perseverance finish its work. In other words, oftentimes in the middle of a trial, you have an option to get out from under the trial before you actually are intended to get out from under it. You have to allow that trial to run its course for the allotted amount of time that you ought to be under it. You know, it's easy, it's easy to get out from maybe a financial trouble by not paying all the bills, by maybe, you know, doing something funny on your taxes. It's easy to get out of a relational trial through lying. There are so many trials that it is so easy to get out of. There's just a little quick step to the left, a little quick step to the right that you can get out from where he says, no, no, no. Let it finish its work because there's a greater purpose to this than just your endurance and your capacity. Verse four, that it must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete and not lacking anything. Now, in my experience, what I've seen is that someone goes through a trial, as someone has gone through something, maybe it's a relationship, perhaps it's you know, an emotional trial, perhaps it's a financial trial, perhaps it's you know, any one of a, of a variety of different things, and we'll sit down and talk about what happened on the back end, and they'll say a statement, something to the effect of, you know, I'm really trying to learn what lesson God has for me in that? I'm really trying to understand, God, why did I have to go through that? God, what was the plan? What was the point? What was the purpose? God, you know, what was the lesson or the thing that God wanted me to get from that? And then sometimes you have a friend that comes alongside of you, they're the kind of the cheerleader, the rah, rah, rah person. And they said, you know, God's going to use this for what he has for you because God has a plan for your future. He has a plan to prosper you and not to harm you. You name it and you claim it and God's got great things in store for you. Just have another friend that comes along and they say something to the effect of, you know, God is going to teach you a lesson. He is giving you this now to equip you for what is later. 
That there's a specific skill set or tool that God is using in this trial to develop something inside of you for what God has next. Let me tell you, that may happen, but that isn't the purpose because then the natural question would be, what is the purpose? What is the next? What is the God's preparing me for when someone has a trial and their trial is that they have been diagnosed with a terminal illness? Because I think what's next is heaven. And I'm pretty sure Jesus already paid for that one. So what's the purpose? You know, I remember a while ago, you know, a number of years back, my mom was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. And she went through the pain and the suffering and, you know, we go to doctor's visits and it was, if you've ever been through that process and, and lost a loved one as I, you know, unfortunately lost my mother to um, her cancer, you know that sometimes folks in their best efforts to encourage do the exact opposite. Because they try to say something on behalf of God that God's going to use this, God's going to, you know, do this, God's going to, and, and, and God's going to preparing you, preparing your mom, and, and, and yet it doesn't happen. Death happens. Now what I love about this verse is it answers the question. The purpose of trials is endurance. That God would grow you, that God would grow your capacity, your ability. But the purpose of that is not simply so that you can sustain or that you can maintain or even that you could thrive. The purpose of that is that you would be mature, that you would grow, that you would be closer to God, you would be more developed as a person. In other words, he says that you would be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Your maturation and your holiness, aka your sanctification, are the primary purposes that God uses trials through to accomplish growth in us. You see, maturation... In sanctification or maturation and holiness will serve us well no matter what, what happens next in life. And there may be a lesson, there may be a skill set, but the purposes are not lessons and the purposes are not skill sets. The purpose is that sometimes God allows us to sit under a weight because we live in a sinful and a broken and a fallen world and the inevitability of life is he says, you will face trials of many kinds. But that is not without hope and that is not without God and that is not without purpose. That though God's plan is perfection and his intention was heaven and his intention was paradise. When sin entered in the world, God still uses and redeems that to make you and me and us more mature in our relationship with him, more developed in our relationship with him, more complete in our holiness and our sanctification. And yes, that may serve us well. And there may be lessons that we learn that are, that are important to whatever is next, but those are ancillary benefits and not primary purposes. You see, God uses a trial to grow our endurance and our endurance for our maturation so that we may be more like him. But anybody who's been through a trial knows that the most difficult part of the trial is keeping that perspective. Because it's so easy to see exactly what's in front of us. I think it's why he says in the very next verse, 
If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God. Now, wisdom is so important. Let me tell you why. Wisdom is the key to perspective. It's very, very difficult to consistently have good, godly perspective in the middle of a trial. To know that God's in control, to know that God has a purpose, to know that God is next to you, to know that God loves you. But he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, if any of you lacks the perspective, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to him. Now this is, this is, this is a little bit different because number one, for most of us, when we need wisdom, we don't ask God. Like we kind of conceptually know that God, you know, probably has some answers. Um, what we do is when any of us lack wisdom, we go see our best friend. When any of us lacks wisdom, you know, we talk to him and we, we process it with our spouse. For some of us, when we lack wisdom, we don't talk to anybody about it. We just want to internally process all of it. And then we want to come out with the answer because we don't want anybody to know that we lack wisdom because we're too insecure to admit, I don't know, I'm not sure. So he says, when you lack wisdom, ask God. Let me just pause and ask this question. Christians, Christians, when you lack wisdom, when you aren't sure what to do, when you lack perspective, who is the first person you ask and is God even in the top five? Let me just ask you this. When you ask God, if you ask God, do you actually ask God or do you complain to God without giving God time or space to respond? Because for most of us, when we tell God, it's God, I got this situation, I got this issue, I got this situation, I got this issue. And I feel like half the time God's saying, I know, by the way, I am God. We don't allow time to just process, to meditate to allow God to speak to us, to perhaps journal and, and as you're thinking about it, invite God into the process of how you're processing something, to invite God to say, God, I know I need wisdom in this situation. And so speak to me, please. Maybe it's through a friend, maybe it's through a family member, maybe it's through a pastor, maybe it's through a community group leader. But God, please speak to me. And it says, and he, this is the second part of it. It says, if anyone lacks wisdom, he should ask God, and God gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. In other words, and God gives to everyone who calls upon his name generously. If you are a Christian and you ask God for wisdom in a particular situation, God will give it to you. That is not a question that isn't up for debate. He will give it to you. That is so different than how we ask wisdom for God. Here's what I realized. Just, let me just give you some self-disclosure. I realized after reading this and processing it, that when I ask God for wisdom, more of what I do is I ask God for wisdom in the same way that I ask God to supernaturally intervene for someone who's sick, as if to say, God, you could, but I don't think that you will. Or God, you could, but I'm not sure that you will. Or God, you could, but I'm just not sure it's actually going to happen. God, I pray for this, I pray for this, I hope for this. But God, I'm just not sure that there will be a divine sense of wisdom. But here's what he says, just come on. I will give it to you. 
There is no question about it. There is no condition of this, of God, if you can't ask God too much, it's not that, oh man, I sinned last night and now, you know, I messed up so God's not gonna answer my prayer. No, it might not be immediate. It might not happen right now. It might not happen in the first 10 minutes. It might not first happen in the first 10 days. But you will get the wisdom that you need. How many of us don't pray to God? When we do, we don't pray to God. We complain to God. And how many of us, when we complain to God, don't give God time to answer? And how many of us, when we actually spend time giving God an opportunity to answer, actually believe that he's going to respond? Which is what, by the way, James addresses next as a condition to this whole thing. Verse 6. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt. Because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is, double, he is a double-minded man and unstable in all that he does. This is interesting. Because when we hear this and interpret this, it, it, it's kind of challenging because we all have had doubts at times. And what he's saying here is not that you never have a doubt of anything in your life. What he's saying this here is when you ask God, you're not the person who walks around saying, yeah, I'm going to ask God, but I don't really think he's going to answer. This is, this is like when Jesus talked to the guy and said, you know, Jesus says, you know, I'm going I'm I'm to heal your person. And the guy says, Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. God, I'm honoring you in the struggle. And I believe and I believe. And there's a fleshly sinful part of me that wants to push back against, especially in a trial to say, but are you sure? But are you sure? But are you sure? But God, I know you are good. I know you are true. Let me, let me tell you, this thought, this belief, this concreteness and unwaveringness is the heart of the gospel. And here's why. If I actually believe that God would so love me, he would send his son to die for me. That he would not withhold his one and only son. That I, because of my innate sinfulness, am alienated from God, rebelled against God, sinful me. That God in his perfection, that God in his glory, that God in his holiness would look upon sinful me. And that he would send his son to die for me. If I'm going through a situation in life that now his Holy Spirit resides inside of me. It does not make sense that God would see that, would see that I'm trying to live for him, glorify him, that I go to him and I ask him and God would just say, nope, I ain't saying it. I'm not telling you. I know that your life, you know, you got a lot of things going on. I know that this is a difficult situation. I know this is a trial, but you know what? It's just in my character to not give guidance and wisdom to the people who are wanting to glorify me and who are following me and who actually believe I'm going to respond. I'm just not going to answer. No, of course not. He says, yes, if he would not withhold his one and only son, he will not withhold from us the guidance that he gives to us supernaturally. Now, again, this does not mean or imply that that guidance is immediate. This doesn't mean that that guidance is ultimately an easy thing. And this does not mean that that guidance sometimes isn't through wise counsel. It doesn't mean that it's not sometimes through critical thought. There's a number of different avenues, but the question is, are we submitting that to God? Or are we just simply going to our friend or our spouse or our coworker or our boss or a mentor or a community group leader without even including God in the process? Because Everyone inevitably goes through trials. And here's what you and I both know. 
if there's purpose of growth, and if there's purpose of maturation, and if there's progress that's made, we consider a lot of things joyful, even though they're not fun. Some of you, you know, you work out, you put all the weights on the rack, and you go to an, into a deep squat. You know, if you're a CrossFitter, if you're not a CrossFitter, then obviously you just go like a third of the way, and you're not really squatting, but that's another summer for another day. But you put the weight on, and you sit under that weight, and it's not because you're like, man, I just love having hundreds of pounds on my back. Or, you know, if you're William Colley, who has just a magnificent squat, thousands of pounds on my back. But it's not that you just love to walk through the halls of work every day or down the streets with all this sweat on your back. It's because you know that as you go down and up and down and up and down and up, you are going to grow. And so you gladly bear that weight because of the growth that happens. And then from time to time, you get a personal record, a PR, and you get hyped and you get so excited because you can now quantify the growth. The same thing happens spiritually through trials. And it's not sadistic, it's not weird. It's just how God, and one of the ways that God works and moves through trials. So let me end all this by um, telling you a, a trial that I've been, that I went through recently um, and I'm now on the other side of and kind of, you know, looking back some of the things that I think were really pivotal to me really learning what God had for me to learn. So many of you know um, that I am bivocational. I pastor the church and also run my family's meat company register, Smoke Pork Sausage. If you haven't tried it, you haven't lived yet, just a shameless plug. Anyway, over the last two years, for a variety of different reasons, the business got more and more difficult. Some of you have been in this situation, you're in a, a small business, perhaps a family business. And because of some market conditions, because of some, some things that you could control, maybe some mistakes that you, maybe, maybe some things that you couldn't control, some, you know, some just variables, things got tighter, things got more difficult, especially over the last, gosh, probably from May of last year, until February of this year. I mean, the heat just kept getting turned up and turned up and turned up and our margins were just not there. I mean, we had no room for air and, and many of you know this. There is no weight. There is no stress like financial stress. And especially when you're in charge of a small business, I mean, the weight of the company and not just the company in and of itself, but your performance creates future. Your performance in every way, shape, or form has implications to not just if you have a job, but if your family eats. For us, it's not just if our family eats, it's for my parents, and it's for retirements, and it's for all. I mean, there are so many eggs in, basket, in, in this basket, and many of you know this, that sometimes the weight of the pressure of the things that are just getting turned up and turned up and turned up, I mean, you just want to go in your bed, pull over the covers, and it just, it, sometimes it just seems like it absolutely is crushing. And I was like a frog boiling in water, if you know that expression. Where the heat just gets turned up and turned up and turned up and turned up. And if you know how it ends, eventually you can boil a frog and the frog never notices because it just gets turned up. On the, on the back end, it's been, we, we, we transitioned some of our company just kind of as a, you know, to tell you what's happened. Transitioned some of our company. It's been the most wonderful last couple of months and things couldn't be headed in, in a better direction. Well, I guess they could be, but it would... <laughs> 
totally 100% better than it was before. But anyways, that to say, as I was going through that and feeling the weight and feeling the pressure, every Friday morning, I would meet with um, William, our executive pastor and discipleship pastor and worship pastor and about 30 different pastoral hats he wears around here. And as I would sit at breakfast with him and we would just talk, um, I would sometimes talk about the pressure. Sometimes I'd be overwhelmed by it. Sometimes I wouldn't know how to identify that as being overwhelmed. But I would feel this sense of pressure. And about, about six months ago, I had this realization that God has given me this weight to bear. That God has given me this weight to bear and that God is growing me through it. That for the longest time I've viewed growth, I've viewed spiritual growth through the lens simply of how often I read and how much I prayed. But that God, God was actually using this to grow my ability, to grow my capacity, to grow my endurance, and that God was making me a more mature and complete believer. And so this, when you can ask William, this was my thought. This was my prayer. This is when I say, what I would tell him, you know, what, what can you pray for me about this, this week? This was the prayer. I pray that I sit under this weight as long as God would have me because I don't want to miss a moment of what he's trying to teach me and how he's trying to mature me. And when the weight is there, when the pressure is there, when it seems unbearable, that perspective is so difficult to have and I was not perfect in having it. But I would pray for the wisdom. God, give me the wisdom to continually have the perspective that I'm going to do everything I can. I'm going to control everything I control. There are things that I can't control. There are things that are ultimately out of my hands. And so God, I'm going to trust you with that. And God, if that means this whole thing ends well or if this whole thing ends in bankruptcy, God, I am trusting you. But God, please help me to let this wait, let this endurance finish its work because I ultimately don't have the goal of being rich. Ultimately, my goal as a believer in Jesus is for my relationship with him to grow, to be mature and complete, sanctified and holy as a follower of his. Let me tell you, that's not the emotionally satisfying response. And we do live in a world that's fallen and broken and trials are inevitable, a variety of different types. But let me tell you, God is using, especially if you're going through something right now, if we were sitting down and you would tell me your story, I would with all the empathy I could have and muster up just tell you, I'm so sorry for what you're going through and it must be extraordinarily difficult but please don't lose heart. Please don't lose heart because God is using this to grow you closer to him. God is using this for your endurance, for your maturation, for your sanctification, and for your holiness. That it might be extraordinarily difficult And you might lose perspective, but when you do, when you don't know what to do, even if you have the right perspective, you please, the practicality is to pray for wisdom, to ask God what to do when you don't know what to do. And I promise you, when you pray 
and you pray in belief, in faith, with expectation that he will answer you. And you come out on the other side of that trial, here's what you'll learn. That you now, though it wasn't easy and it was painful, are now more mature. You now have more endurance. You are now more complete and holy as a believer of his. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, I pray for anybody and everybody listening to this who perhaps is going through an extraordinary life situation. Maybe it's a little trial, but God, especially if it's just this crushing one. I pray that you would give them courage. I pray that you would give them strength. I pray that you would surround them with your love. And God, I pray that ultimately you would help them to know that you can use this. God, we know that your perfection was the ideal. Holiness was the ideal. We know that, that the garden was the ideal. God, but we know that you can still, in this fallen and broken world where sin is inevitable, where brokenness is inevitable, and where trials are inevitable, you can use those to bring us closer to you, to be mature and complete, and that through that, you would be glorified in and through us. Because if you would not withhold your one and only son, you will not withhold the wisdom that we need to have the perspective that we need to see that you ultimately are using this to bring us closer to you for our maturation, for our completeness, and for your glory. Amen.